So um, in the Hodges household when I was growing up, we didn't go out to eat that often. But when we did or when we were out of town, especially I just remember going from Boone to Greensboro and Winston-Salem and there was a K&W cafeteria. Some of you guys remember K&W cafeteria. So we'd go through K&W cafeteria and I can still see it. I mean, we'd go through the line and first are the jello salads and the fruit salads and toss salad. Now nah, I wasn't really interested in that. And then we would get to all the meats, the roast beef, the ham, the chicken, you know, all that stuff. And then we'd get to the vegetables and then the desserts. And here was the mantra that came from Glenn Hodges as we went through that line. Your eyes are bigger than your stomach. Your eyes are bigger than your stomach. And so there was a constant veto power coming from Glenn and Betty Ann, too. You know, I'd grab it, they'd grab it and put it back. Then you could still put stuff back, you know. So um, so there was this constant one, your eyes are bigger than your stomach. Well, my eyes were bigger than my stomach when I was preparing and kind of putting together the sermon for today. Because if you look at your sermon notes, it has First Samuel 19 and 20. Well, that's one plate too much to go on the tray for today, okay? Just telling you that up front. Um, so you can rest easy. We're not going to try to go through both of these chapters. Uh, chapter 20 is the longest chapter in First Samuel, and so obviously we wouldn't be reading through it either way, whether today or next week we're not going to read through it word for word. And that's the challenge sometimes with narrative passages. Long sections of scripture and, and it's just hard sometimes to read them all and go through them verse by verse. I don't think it's necessary that we do that with the narrative. So we got the K and W version today. We're just going to do Psalm 19. I mean, first Samuel 19 and then we'll look at, uh, first Samuel 20, the Lord willing next week. So turn there and, and as you're turning there, turn also to Psalms. I've already read Psalm 2. I invite you to turn to Psalm 59, or at least put a marker there in your Bible, because we'll look at it in a few minutes. So, for the last several weeks, we've been singing pretty regularly the song that talks about the victory that is ours in Christ. You've already won, right? We've sung that. Many have commented on how just how meaningful that song has been to them. Well, if we were going to pick a song to be the theme for the next several chapters in 1 Samuel, it would be what we just sung, He Will Hold Me Fast. Because here's the challenge of what we find in the passage here today. As we work through, starting really in chapter 18 and 19, we come to the most desperate and discouraging time in David's life. And many of the Psalms are written to recount what's going on in David's life. And so the tension that you saw last week in chapter 18 with JT leading us through chapter 18, the difference between a God-centered life and a self-centered life, and that characteristic of those two lives, that, that contrast is so clear. JT did a great job last week pointing that out. Well, that same contrast is before us as we look at these next few chapters. David is God's anointed king. The word anointed there actually means Messiah. And so David, in many ways, is the Messiah for Israel at this time. This is the, David is the Messiah, the anointed one for God's people as we look at this section of Scripture. And David is a faithful anointed one, okay? That's the thing. David is faithfully carrying out the responsibilities that he's been given. He's being successful on the battlefield. 
He is humbly and as best as we can tell without question doing exactly what Saul asks him to do or commands him to do now that he's in the service of Saul. So David is being faithful. He's being responsible. He's being successful. He is being esteemed and it's recognized by others that he is successful and faithful and honorable. And the more he is faithful, the worse life gets for him. The more he is obedient, the more things seem to fall apart. The more he does what he believes God has called him to do, the more difficult his life becomes. And it gets to the point where at the beginning of chapter 20, David is just completely confused. What have I done wrong? What am I doing wrong? The prosperity gospel and prosperity preachers, I've never heard one, I've never read anything that they've written having to do with this season of David's life because this messes them up. This messes them up. Prosperity preachers say that the evidence of saving faith, the evidence of a vitality in your walk with Christ, is that the promises of God given even to Abraham are fulfilled in your life. That you have that blessing of prosperity and health and a large family and esteem and recognition and all that goes along with that. The prosperity proponents are having a hard time making sense out of David's life when we come to chapter 19 and 20. And all the way through the rest of 1 Samuel. And guess what? David has a hard time making sense out of his life. And so do I and you. When we come into seasons of our lives where, you know, as best as we can tell, we're doing what we ought to do. And it's just not working out. So that's why you have that title, faithful and fleeing, with a question mark. Those things don't seem to go together. So the first thing we do before we even look at the text, before we even look at 1 Samuel chapter 19, is, is, is I want to lay out something that I believe is critically important to our understanding of God's redemptive purposes and our place in those purposes and his purposes for us individually and as a church. Just lay out some bedrock truths that if we, if we get away from these, we're going to find the edges starting to fray and crumble. So we have to, I want us to see that. And, and the three things that have just been on my mind are God's calling, God's promises, and God's protection. So this isn't the main part of the sermon, but this is kind of the foundation of everything that's going on in David's life, and I believe in ours as well. God's calling, his gracious calling. First, his gracious calling of David himself. David is still amazed, and he hasn't even gotten the full picture of what it involved for him to be called by God to be the king. But in Psalm 78, it says, He chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds, from following nursing ewes, and brought him to be the shepherd, brought him to shepherd Jacob his people, Israel his inheritance. With an upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them. With his skillful hand. God called and took David from the sheepfold, from the field, to make him king. God has called you and me. Peter tells us he's taken a people who were once not a people and made us his own. It tells us in Ephesians 1 
Remember when we say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless. He called us. He chose us. In love, he predestined us for adoption as his children, Paul says. So, God's gracious calling. Then, God's promises. God's faithful, eternal promises. Turn over to 2 Samuel. And we'll spend a long time in this passage when we get to 2 Samuel. But in chapter 7, God makes this amazing promise to David. This astounding covenant. 2 Samuel 7. The word of the Lord came to Nathan, and God told Nathan, you go and tell my servant David, I'm in 2 Samuel 7, starting in verse uh, 4. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I've been moving about in a tent of my dwelling in all places where I've moved I, with all the people of Israel. Did I speak a word of any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? So David wanted to build God a temple, a dwelling place. And God says, No, the time is not now for you to build me a temple. Look at what he says. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be the prince over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you went, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. Just skip over to the end, just for time's sake, to the end of that little section. Look at what it says in verse 15. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. That is God's eternal promise to David. Your kingdom and your descendants will be on the throne forever and ever. Well, how does that apply to us? What's his eternal promise to us? Well, if we follow that redemptive story all the way through to the end, Peter tells us that God's promise to us is the new heavens and the new earth. Right? I mean, that's the picture that we saw all the way through the book of Revelation. A new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Well, what will our place be in that fulfilled promise? Well, again, John tells us in the book of Revelation that we are going to be standing with this throng who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ, remember, from every tribe and tongue and nation. And we're going to sing a new song. We sang a new song this morning. We'll sing a new song then. And the song that we sing then will be, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you've ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And it says then, and they shall reign on the earth. David's calling was a royal calling. And so is ours. Church, we need to understand that. We need to grasp that. But not yet. <laughs> we're, we're not there yet. And so we need, thirdly, God's consistent 
constant protection. And that's what we have illustrated for us in 1 Samuel 19 and 20 and really all the way through the next, the concluding part of 1 Samuel. God's constant protection. That's what Jesus promised us, right? In John 10. He told us nothing's going to snatch us out of his hands. I give them eternal life, he said, and they shall never perish. That's his promise to you. That's his promise to me. So that foundation, okay, God's gracious calling, God's eternal promise, and his constant, consistent protection. What do those three things mean in David's life and what do they mean to you and me? Well, the first thing is that I understand, and you should too, David's covenant and David's calling are unique in redemptive history, okay? So in many ways, like it was when he faced Goliath on the field, we are not David. We are the sniveling, scared army. We're not David. And we're not David here either. But God's calling and promise and protection are clear for his redeemed people, okay? That's we hold on to that. And here's the underlying, here's, here's the way it's summarized, I think, most succinctly and clearly for us. It's in Romans 8. If you want to turn over there, it's familiar, but just, just look at it with me, okay? Because I just want us to have this ingrained in our hearts as we look at this account. We know that those, we know, Dave, Paul says, that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Some versions say that God works all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Either way, it's the same. We are called according to his purpose. And that purpose goes back to eternity past. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many, many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So it's past, present, and future. He foreknew, he called, he predestined, he justified, and he will glorify us. That's foundational, church. But secondly, and related to that, is this. Before he was born, David understood, and he wrote it in Psalm 139, before I was formed, all of our days were written, David says, every one of them in your book. Okay? We, we, we have to believe that. All of our days are written in his book. And so his purposes and plans for us are laid out, and they will not change. And it says in the book of Acts, in chapter 13, in in. in, in in Paul's sermon there, he's using David as an illustration of what happens after die. We, we are corrupt. We go to the ground. We came from dust. We go back to dust. Not Jesus. And so he gives that, that contrast. He says, for David, after he had served the purposes of God in his own generation, fell asleep, lay with his fathers, and saw corruption. After he had fulfilled God's purpose, he was gone. How long will you live till you fulfill God's purpose that he has determined for your life? That might be five minutes from now. It might be 50 years. I've sat beside the bedside of a, hundreds of old saints, as have many of us. I don't understand why God's still got me here. 
And I go to this passage. I don't understand either. I just know that you are still fulfilling God's purpose in your generation. And when God says that's done, you'll be out of here. Just like that. So I say all this to lay the foundation that God's gracious calling, His promises, and His protection are sure for us. And like David, that calling and promise and protection will keep us and sustain us in this life here as long as God sees fit, as long as His purposes in and through us are being done. And when those are finished, we're done. David's not done yet. And so he goes into this difficult season of his life. Let's look at the verse. Look at the passage. Chapter 18 ended, as Jonathan showed us last week, with David having more success than all the servants of Saul. And his name is highly esteemed. Verse nine, chapter 19, follow along with me in verse 1. And Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants, that they should kill David. Now, if you want to just keep that word kill in your mind, that is a key word in this chapter. It's a key word in this chapter. It's here seven or eight times, depending on the translation you use. So it it helps us understand the theme. Saul... Everything that's been going on in his mind, everything that's been going on in that messed up space between his ears, now becomes verbal. They should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine, and the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you kill against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things, and Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. And there was war again. And David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow so that they fled before him. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul, and he sat in his house with his spear in his hand. And David was playing the lyre. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear, stuck the spear into the wall. And David fled and escaped that night. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him, that he might kill him in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, told him, if you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michael let David down through the window and he fled away and escaped. Michael took an image 
and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with the cloths, with clothes. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, he is sick. And then Saul sent the messengers to see David, saying, bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed with the pillow of goat's hair at its head. Saul said to Michael, why have you deceived me thus and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? And Michael answered Saul, he said to me, let me go. Why should I kill you? Now David fled and escaped, and he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and lived at Naoth. And it was told Saul, behold, David is at Naoth in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David, and when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying and Samuel standing his head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. And when it was told Saul, he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they also prophesied. Then he went to Ramah himself. Sometimes if you want it done right, you've got to do it yourself, right? Yes. So when he told, so when it was told Saul, um, excuse me, then he himself went to Ramah and came to the great well that is Isekhu, and he asked, where are Samuel and David? And one said, Behold, they are at Naoth in Ramah. And he went there to Naoth in Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went, he prophesied until he came to Naoth in Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes, and he prophesied before Samuel, and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, Is Saul also among the prophets? So we read that narrative account of Three different, maybe four different occasions where David is threatened and he escapes. And as we read through that, I hope we, we just see, wow, it's amazing how God worked to protect David. Now, not everybody would see it that way, but it's important that we recognize that. That in the reality of being faithful to God, David's life is falling apart. And yet God is still working faithfully holding him. It's just cool to see all this happening. So in David's life, we see the reality that our faith, as genuine as we believe it is, and and it is, it can be shaken by fears and frustrations and assaults. And again, there's, there's key words in this chapter, all right? I already mentioned kill. Kill is, there's seven or eight times that the word kill is here. That's the goal of Saul, right? Another key word in this is the verb to be sent. And that word is in this chapter eight times where Saul sends others to kill him. So Saul is consumed with his hatred and animosity and his jealousy toward David. The third word that's in here eight times is flee or escape. That's the theme of this chapter. And guess what? That's going to be the theme of the next, depending on which scholar or which time frame you use, that's going to be the theme of the next anywhere from 5 to 15 years of David's life. He doesn't jump on the throne. He runs for his life. 
And he does it month after month and year after year. Have God's purposes and plans all of a sudden been changed? No. And just like with the children of Israel, and just like with me and you, it is through these wilderness wanderings and these cave dwellings that David grows to be the man that God wants him to be. And so David is fleeing, even though he is faithful. Faithful against open hostility. You see, what's been implied by Saul's attitude and his actions is now made implicit, okay? It's clear, explicit rather, by his words. Kill him. And he says this to Jonathan and all his servants, so it's not hidden anymore. Jonathan, up until this point in time, has given his dad the benefit of the doubt, as all of us would and should. But now it's become clear. My father wants to kill you, David, and he communicates that to David. And he boldly and bravely and humbly says, let me go speak to my father on your behalf. And that's what's laid out there, this plan. And Jonathan is successful. Why would you want to bring a blood curse? And that's what the word means there. Why would you shed innocent blood and bring God's blood curse on yourself and the people of God by killing an innocent man? That's Jonathan's question. That's not kingly behavior, Dad. That's not how you ought to behave. That's not what you ought to do. And Saul hears him and makes a commitment. Did Saul mean what he said when he said, when he swore by God's name, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death? I believe he did. But I believe in that messed up space between his ears and that troubling spirit that comes upon him, he meant it at the time. But it just didn't last long, right? Because those voices and those, those inclinations and those motivations are greater than that commitment that he makes there to his son. There is war again. David goes out and fights again. And David succeeds again. And Saul is jealous again and tries to kill him again. That's the cycle. Open hostility. He's faithful. But he's facing hostility. He's faithful, but he has to flee for his life. Look at verses 8 and 10, 8 through 10. See if you hear this. David went out, fought the Philistines, struck them with a great blow so that they fled before him. Hear that? Fought them, struck them, and they fled. Look at verse 10. Saul sought to pin David to the wall with his spear, but he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall and David fled and escaped. David struck the Philistines and they fled. Saul struck at David and he fled. David's being treated like a Philistine by the king whom God has called out to fight the Philistines. It's an amazing picture of just how deep and how dark is the heart of Saul. So he's facing open hostility in Saul's house. He even faces this open hostility and has to flee from his own house. Look at what happens in verse 11. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him. Basically, several Old Testament scholars, and I think it would be accurate to say this, see this not as a one-time, one-night event. David is under house arrest. I think there's... Plenty of evidence later on that this was not just one night. David flees to his house. Saul puts his spies around the house. Let me know if he leaves. 
Let me know if his movements. I don't know if they're staked out front in, a go- in an ox cart, you know, like the cop movies wearing sunglasses. I don't know. But they're surrounding his house. They're watching his every move. David is under constant surveillance. Even in his own house, he's not safe in his own house with his own wife. And at some point in time, word gets to Michael that her father has the killing crew coming. All right? If you don't escape tonight, David, you'll be killed. So he escapes through the window and he flees. He escapes, it says in verse 12. And then Michael, his wife, puts... An image. The word is, is teraphim. It's, it's word for a large idol. Now there's debate. Did she actually take an idol, a household idol, and wrap it up in a blanket and put a goat's hair wig on it so it looked like David asleep, you know? You seen Escape from Alcatraz? You remember what he did when he hit himself? Never mind. I'm not going to get into that movie. It's a great movie, but it looks like there's somebody laying in the bed, but there's not. Michael is deceiving her father and those who come. And she said, he's sick. Now, some commentators say that she put something in the bed, put a wig on it so that it looked like David, and put that household idol beside the bed, which would be common in the day, because they believe that idol would help David get better. Either way, she's protecting her husband by deceiving her dad. Saul's family is against him. His son And his daughter are against him. Why? Because he has proven himself to be against the Lord's anointed. And so, yes, they're taking sides. Now, we'll talk in a minute about whether or not Michael did the right thing. All right? But for now... She, she deceives her father. So he flees again in verse 18, goes to, goes to his spiritual father Samuel, and just, I'm sure, poured his heart out. This is a counseling session that he needed. Samuel probably wasn't expecting it. But, and I'm sure Samuel has heard. Samuel knows what's going on. He flees and he comes to Samuel, and together they leave and go to this place called Naoth, and there they're, they're in hiding, if you will. But again, Saul's got his spies, he got his word, and he knows where David is. He always seems to know where David is. And so David is being relentlessly pursued, as we will see through the rest of Samuel, no matter where he goes. So David can't be safe in Saul's house. He can't be safe in his own house. He can't be safe with Samuel in this, in this high place, in this place of worship. I wonder what David's thinking through all this. Well, Psalm 59 tells us. Turn over there. Psalm 59, I'm sure, is postscript. You know, after David's had some time to reflect on this. But this is like reading the journal. It's like reading David's journal back from these days. I want to read it to you. I want to read it with you. Psalm 59. Read the description. Do you see what it says there at the beginning? To the choir master according to do not destroy. This is a a lyrical term, a metcom. It's a, a musical term. It says, Ab David... Here's the occasion when Saul sent men to watch his house in order to kill him. The context for Psalm 59 is 1 Samuel 19. Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. 
Deliver me from those who work evil and save me from bloodthirsty men. Do you see that description? Enemies rising up against him. Evil workers, bloodthirsty men. For behold, they lie in wait for my life, in verse 3. Fierce men stir up strife against me. That word for fierce there actually means strong ones. David recognizes there is strength in Saul. Not just physical strength, but political and military strength. Fierce men stir up strife against me. For no transgression or sin of mine, O Lord, for no fault of mine, they run and make ready. David is not claiming to be sinless there in verse 3. He's just saying, as far as I know, in this situation, I am innocent. In this situation, I have no iniquity, no transgression. This is not my fault, David says. In the first of chapter 20, he's going to say that to Jonathan. I don't understand why this is happening. Verse 5, you, O Lord of hosts, excuse me, you, Lord God of hosts, are God of Israel. (laughs) Wake up. Rouse yourself to punish all the nations. Spare none of those who treacherously plot evil. Selah. Each morning they come back. So this is where I think we see that this was not just one night. Each morning they come back howling like dogs and prowling about the city. There they are, bellowing with their mouths, with swords in their lips. For who, they think, will hear us. But you, O Lord, laugh at them. You hold all the nations in derision. O my strength. I will watch for you, for you, O God, are my fortress. My God is my, my God in his steadfast love will meet me. God will let me look in triumph on my enemies. And then in verse 11, David says, Lord, I don't want you to kill them. Kill them not, lest my people forget. Make them totter by your power and bring them down, O Lord, our shield. For the sin of their mouths, the words of their lips, let them be trapped in their pride. For cursing and lies that they utter, consume them in wrath, consume them till all, till they are no more. That they may know God rules over Jacob to the ends of the earth. So David says, I don't want you to kill them. I want your people to learn a lesson that you're faithful. Verse, verse 12, I want there to be justice. And verse 13, I want you to be known throughout the earth as faithful God. Verse 14, each evening they come back howling like dogs and prowling about the city. They wander about for food and growl if they do not get their fill. But look at how David sings in the upper room of that house. But I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. For you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. O oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you. For you, O oh God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. That steadfast love that he sings about there will be the theme in the next chapter, in chapter 20. That covenant love between Jonathan and David. But do you see what David says there in Psalm 59? About this, this whole chapter, this whole season of his life that's going on here? We see the reality that our faith can be shaken. But we also see the reality that it can be strengthened. That as God protects, he also sustains. That protection comes first through just a faithful friend of Jonathan. You see that in that first part of chapter 19? Jonathan's love and his support. Not just that, but his intercession. He stands before his crazy father and intercedes on David's behalf. 
And he does it in a humble yet direct way. Don't sin. That's what you're doing, Dad. Don't sin against God and against David. He confronts his father. He does it humbly. He does it boldly. But he's clear in what he's saying. And we'll see that covenant love come out even more clearly in chapter 20. He gets support from his friend. He gets support from his wife, from his own family down there in that next section. Now, now Michael's deception there and her lying are not an example for us. I don't, I shouldn't have to say that, but the scripture here is not telling us that lying is okay. But it's not commenting on it either, is it? Not here. The complexities of what's going on here. The interrelationships between a husband and his wife and that wife and her father. Between a son and his dad. It gets complicated, right? Scripture is clear we shall not lie. Scripture is clear that there is no lying in God. That's not a part of his character. But one commentator put it this way. To lie is an act of hostility. When Rahab lied... Back in the book of Joshua, it meant that she was taking the side of the Israelites and treating her own people as an enemy. That is why Michael's lie is so shocking. She lied to her father and is treating him like an enemy. This, of course, was because he had made himself an enemy of David. So lying is not put for us here as a justification, but it's just showing us Michael's heart, her heart for her husband. And I believe her understanding of what's at play, of what's going on here. This is a house divided. The king has set himself up against God's anointed, Allah, Psalm 2. He's taken his stand against David and therefore taken his stand against God. And it will not go well for Saul. It will not go well for him. What we see Jonathan and Michael doing are kissing the sun. Kiss the son lest he be angry with you. They are esteeming and honoring the anointed one of God in David. It's just a beautiful picture there of, of, of that. Now let me make a quick comment on Saul's prophesying of what happens at Ramah. I love it. God uses Jonathan to protect David. He uses Michael, his wife, to protect David. And then God steps in and does it himself. The Holy Spirit of God comes and does it himself. Not once, not twice, but three times Saul sends a kill squad. And every time they get baptized, if you will, the Spirit falls on them and they prophesy. Now the word prophesying there, as we saw earlier, can mean a lot of different things. It can mean just spiritual, it can mean spiritual understanding and proclaiming the Word of God, but it can also mean just sheer ecstasy. Just almost out of control ecstasy. I tend to think that that's probably what's happened here in the second case. That these prophets are just disarmed. They're made, in one way, completely helpless before the Spirit of God, through the Spirit of God. And so they come to take David or to kill David, and they end up singing some songs. So, and again, Saul says, man, if if you want it done, right, do it. So Saul goes to do it. And what happens to Saul? Here's what happens to Saul. This proud, violent, vengeful, jealous king is stripped and laid bare on the ground before God and others. 
by God himself. Isn't it interesting that earlier Jonathan voluntarily disrobed himself? Right? Jonathan showed us, JT showed us this. He took off his robe, he took off his armor, he took off his sword. And as a sign of humble acknowledgement that David was the king, gave those garments to David. Saul wasn't voluntarily doing this. The Spirit of God came upon him and struck him, stripped him, and here we see the king laying naked on the ground all day and all night. And the people talking about it. And I don't think they're talking about it in a positive way. God's protection. God's protection. Here's, here's some things to think about, some applications of this. They're pretty simple, pretty straightforward. I'm not going to go back and read Psalm 2 again, but the instruction from Psalm 2 is to recognize God's work, God's ways through God's anointed. It was true temporally for David. It's true eternally in Christ. And we live in a culture, we live in a world where the kings and those in authority, those in places of power and decision, set themselves against God, His anointed and His word. In a way, they can't help it. Because they're blind to the glory of God, unaware of the presence of God, and don't know anything about His offer of salvation and grace in Christ. Oh, they may know about it, but you know what I mean. They don't know it in their hearts. So they've set themselves against the king. And the word from the psalmist in Psalm 2 is, Be wise, O ruler of the earth. And David's prayer in Psalm 59 was, Don't kill him. Let us learn from this. So my first application is, Be wise, be warned, be instructed. Jesus is not to be trifled with, and his word is not to be ignored. Because one day everything will be stripped off of us and we will stand before the God who created us. He knows us now. He sees now. So be wise. Be warned. Saul didn't get it. He didn't accept that warning. He didn't understand that. It's a serious matter to oppose God and God's purposes and God's people. But here's the deal. I don't know of anyone in this room, I know most of you, I don't know of anyone in this room who would go out and publicly take a stand against God or against His Word or against His people. The battlefield is not so much in the culture in that regard. It's in our hearts, right? It's in our hearts. It's there that we refuse God's ways and God's rule and God's Word. It's there that out of jealousy, we decide my way is better. It's there when we are confronted with the sin of our own hearts, that jealousy and selfish ambition like James talks about in chapter 3 exist. And he says where jealousy exists, listen carefully, where jealousy exists, there will be every disorder and every vile practice. Solomon, I mean, Saul's life is a train wreck. And it'll get worse. And it begins with this jealousy and a stand against God. Don't do that. Be warned. Jesus is Lord. Amen? He's Lord over every decision, every relationship, every step we take. Be warned and be wise. Secondly, be thankful. I couldn't help but reflect on this all week. 
How many times has God protected me from stupid me? How many times has God protected you from stupid you? Too many to count. More than we even know, right? More than we know. David doesn't know all that God is doing in the background to protect him. He knows what Jonathan has said and done. He sees what Michael has said and done. He doesn't understand what the Spirit of God has done there at Ramah. We don't always see and understand God's protection, His deliverance. That He's kept you alive and me alive till today for a reason. And listen, some of you, I believe with all of my heart, have been kept alive physically so that you can come alive spiritually. God in His grace has chosen to keep you breathing so that He can bring life to your sin-dead soul. Don't waste it. Don't take it for granted. And be thankful, church. Be thankful. Psalm 59 is this picture of David up in that bedroom while they're spying on him and, and seeking to kill him. Of him singing to his protector, his stronghold, and his steadfast God. Let that be our song. He's protecting us. Thirdly, related to that, is if we're here until God chooses to take us, and as long as we are being faithful to that calling that He's given us, who can separate us from God's love in Christ? We can be bold and confident. Jesus said, I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So nothing and no one can come up against us. Because God is for us. So let's stop with the timidity. Let's stop with the fear. Let's stop with this testimony of godlessness and faithlessness in the face of a scared to death world. We as God's people ought to be leading the way with boldness. Leading the way with just being faithful in the call and the mission that God has given us. Because not death, nor life, nor angels, nor powers, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, or anything else is able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. So, Father, we pray for fruit from your word in the lives of your people. And I do pray, Father, I thank you for your saving, protecting, sustaining grace in my life, in the lives of all of us, one way or another. And Father, I pray that none would waste that protection, that no one, Lord, would walk away from this place today or from hearing this or watching it and not be absolutely rock solid in the security that they have in Jesus. Father, I pray that they would turn from their sin and trust in their Savior, Jesus, our champion. And the Father, you would fill us with a fear, a holy reverence of you and of your Son. And fill your people with the joy of your salvation and the joy of being on mission with you and knowing that it cannot fail. And I pray that in Christ's name. Amen.